Welcome back to The Immigrant Fiancé. I'm Dan Gooding, a Brit living in New York City after going through the K-1 visa process. So far, I've given you an intro to the fiancé visa, talked about COVID delays, and talked you through the initial application to get to the States. This time, we're doing things a little differently. I actually really enjoy it and I get almost creepily excited and invested in people's applications. They'll be like, I got my receipt notice, is that good? And I'm back here like, woohoo! That's Stacey Rogers. She works as an immigration consultant to help people like me, like you, get through this whole process. There's two pathways. You're either going to stay and you're going to get your green card or you're going to get deported. This episode is a little longer than before, but I wanted to share our whole conversation with you. I think it will be really beneficial wherever you're at in the immigration process. If you're short for time, I've put the different chapter links in the description for you to flick through. But for now, let's get going with the immigrant fiancé. So um, my name is Stacey and I'm in Minnesota, which is north near the Canadian border. And how long have you been in the States for now? Since 2018, um, so just over three years now. I sat down to chat with Stacey, who wanted to talk on the immigrant fiancé as part of her role as an immigration consultant with Family First Immigration Services. She used to be a lawyer when she lived in Australia. And then I met my husband, who is an American, uh, and kind of the rest is history with the visa process, went through all of that, and here we are, a little boy later, and... Um, three years down the road and life's exciting. So from I think what you said you guys went around the kind of opposite route to the K1 and that you got married so did you get married in Australia then? No we got married in the US um, so I I was um, here on a tourist visa went home started the CR1 visa after um, we got married and then I came back twice um, on the second visit my husband actually got into a bit of a serious situation and was in hospital for six weeks um, so at that point you know he needed care and everything like that so we decided to change the adjustment of status process and and went through that route instead of finishing um, the CR1 visa but actually kind of funny because these days people wait for two years plus and and it's quite a horrifying situation with the visa process even with k1 at the time i was assigned potomac as my service center and it was an outrage because they were going to take six months to approve the petition and then um in sydney where i would have had my interview um what you could do was email the consulate once you'd uploaded your documents to the NVC and they would have scheduled an interview about three weeks three weeks later and that would have been enough time for them to documentarily qualify, send it over Goodness. and you would have had your interview and be done um, within, you know, I mean, so plus the six months, it would have been a seven-month process. And I just laugh these days because people ask yeah. me about my process and I'm like, it's just not relevant, you know, yeah, like I mean- it's... <laughs> you know but yeah for many other people that I've spoken to so far and obviously what people have been through the last year or so like six months sounding a long time is is hilarious really isn't yeah. it you know and I don't think people realized just how much of a delay we would be would be dealing with no. um I mean for you obviously so the adjustment of status kind of process is very similar to mm. that of um the k1 how did you kind of find that because obviously there is a huge amount of of paperwork and so on and you were already dealing with a lot by the sounds of it in wanting to do the AOS um, route how did you kind of cope with all of that at the time? I just kind of 
waded through it honestly it was and I think that's a situation that most people find themselves in is just wading through it and looking back now knowing what I know now about the process first knowing what I knew then um you know I mean you can just see how many errors it is easy to make and um you know it's just it's very difficult to find information like you mentioned before and the main issue is that most of the information that you can find it's it's a lot of wrong information and it's very confidently given um and when you're in this process for the first time and you're finding out this information that's being confidently given it's very difficult to um establish what's correct and what's not so it's good to have these groups on Facebook and everything as a support, um, which was nice. Um, I think, though, that it it was just, yeah, I looking back, I now know how um, how erroneous a lot of the things that I was told was and how difficult it was to kind of wade through that information. And then also, you know, the I mean, the the instructions on the forms are fairly clear, which is good, but they're not complete. That's the only thing is they don't give you the full picture. So what were some of the things that you kind of, I guess, got tripped up on at the time that you kind of look back and go, oh, that maybe was obvious and I, sh- I shouldn't have listened or, or what have you? So I think the main thing would be around the affidavit of support. Um, and then also just, um, and this is something that I really see a lot of the same common errors in my, my work now too, is through address history and stuff like that, how accurate you actually need to be. You know, when I was going through the process, it was, it was very much a situation where I did the best I could to guesstimate, um, not realizing that really you should go and you should um, make sure that these dates are correct and everything is complete um, because they use that information to do a background check on you and then you can cause yourself delays. And there's just kind of no one out there talking about the exact process and what you should be putting in the forms and what um, evidence should go along with it. And that's what I see a lot of too uh, is just it's really created an attitude in within the immigrant community of nonchalant being very nonchalant about the information that you put into these applications and the evidence that you send along um oh well you know I don't have this so I just won't send it rather than bothering to get it and the reason is is just honestly time enthusiasm they're very enthusiastic to get their application in, which is completely understandable, but it just, you know, it creates a lot of issues down the road with delays with RFEs and and all those different types of fun things to deal with. Absolutely. And continuing on with your kind of own personal experience, how was that adjustment process for you? Did it kind of, despite those things, did it work out relatively easily? It did, yeah. Um, so I didn't receive any requests for evidence or anything like that. Um, so at least I guess I did half a half a good job. <laughs> um, I think though emotionally it really took a big toll was the biggest thing was, you know, I remember a lot of nights just sitting feeling desperate to get a job and to work and especially, you know, because my husband was still recovering. So we got down to a situation where um, I requested an expedite for my employment authorization document and it had been 60 days and I'd been calling them every single day and we had $700 left in the bank in our savings down from like 20 grand. And, you know, I'm calling them and I'm like, I can't meet my rent next month. I'm going to be homeless. Like I need you to help me. And 
it was just such a helpless situation and I couldn't get a response out of them for 60 days and I had to get the congressperson involved and then finally I got an approval but it, it really wasn't when we we weren't in a really desperate and dire situation and I think a lot of people face that same thing and that's probably the biggest part of the application because once you start working I mean your life just goes on as normal you work you do your normal activities and then all of a sudden an interview notice turns up in the mail and suddenly you've got four weeks to prepare this while you're trying to work a full-time job and all of that but you know life just doesn't slow down and stop and there's no monetary strain and it's a little bit better but that first part of that process that's really the hardest part I think the waiting around like you say you know I'm in that at the moment and you kind of have days where it like it doesn't bother you and other days where you're like oh, I miss just like the structure of having yeah. a normal job and having a, a routine and so on and like you yeah. say you're just waiting at the at the will and whim of U.S. immigration which obviously is yeah. is a tough one you know it's a it's a hugely kind of overwhelmed system is my impression from kind of talking to people and seeing kind of the sheer numbers of people who are trying to apply and so on yeah. and I think like you say a lot of people really struggle with that lack of control I think that's probably the best way of putting it is this sort of lack of control about what you're doing yeah it is it really is because the other thing is too like there's two pathways you're either going to stay and you're going to get your green card or you're going to get deported (laughs) like and and that's the thing you're it's a risk of your entire livelihood and um you know I mean I when you just imagine being ripped away from someone that you love and after you put in all this effort to move halfway across the world, like it's a very scary situation. Um, and it's not kind of, I guess, made any better by the delays that are caused. And then also everyone's going through the same thing. So your support system can be very negative and it's very, um, you know, like misery loves company type of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think especially when it seems to differ from state to state and like you say, center to center as well, that's very difficult because you can't really give an accurate thing. And all you're being asked all the time from people back home and so on is, oh, so when can you work and when can you travel? And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, (laughs) Having to give the answer of I don't know all the time, I think that does weigh you down a little bit. Yeah, that's right. And it's also the same when talking to other US citizens or other people in the US who just haven't been through the process because they're like, oh, I thought that was easy. And it's like, you've just spent thousands of dollars and months and years of your time doing it. And you're like, yeah, no, not even the closest thing to easy. No, absolutely. I mean, we're coming up to two years since we first submitted everything and you know we thought that was going to be a seven month process and ended up doing the move you know in the summer this year and or last year now goodness um and that yeah it's people don't have any idea I think about how long it all actually takes so talk to me a bit about your work then obviously you said when you were in Australia you were working as a lawyer and I so you kind of continued that now is that right? Sort of I mean very very different so I'm not a lawyer in the US um I'm in the process of working on that so um yeah I mean I'm an immigration consultant technically so I fill in forms and I help people with mock interviews and I um help people with expedite letters and different things like that. And so how have you found that then because obviously everyone's case is different really we're all kind of filling out similar forms and so on but everyone's is different how have you found that um kind of seeing it as I suppose especially over the last couple of years where the process has got longer? Yeah 
Um, I found it good. I, I actually really enjoy it and I get almost creepily excited and invested in people's applications and their situation. You're talking about love. Why, why wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I mean, like, they'll be like, I got my receipt notice. Is that good? And I'm back here like, woohoo, you know, like <laughs> partying and I'm more excited than them. But, um, you know, it's, it's kind of hard too because we're going through the ups and downs and especially when they're overseas and, um, you know, I mean, you have to break the news to someone that potentially with your spouse you're going to be away from them or your fiance you're going to be away from them for a couple of years worst case let's prepare to get the California service center which is the worst at the moment and if that happens you know we're looking at a two-year turnaround and that's kind of the first thing that I say to them so I think it's important that we set those expectations but it's also you go on that emotional roller coaster with them because it's like you know I mean and and it's easy for me to put myself in that position um knowing how I would have felt being away from my spouse if someone broke the news to me at that point when we were thinking six months is outrageous that two years you know I mean it's it's not an easy process by any means and um it's it's kind of disappointing for people I think at this point that that's the possibility and the potential um it's kind of nice on the K1 end, and I mean, this also depends on the embassies as well, but it's nice on the K1 end that that initial approval comes within that six to eight, possibly 10 months, um, now that they've <clears throat> moved those all over to one SOA centre instead of the two. I think we're going to see a little bit more of an extension on those approval times, but for now, you know, we're still sitting at around that six to eight month mark, which is nice. Um, but then, you know, say they're in the Philippines or India, you add another 18 months onto the process just for the fact that their embassy isn't operating as normal. Um, so, I mean, I think mainly, you know, you get through the forms, it's really quite easy, but the the other part of that is the emotional roller coaster that everyone goes on. And that's such a prevalent part of the process right now, rather than let's just get in and get this done. It really is such a, a toll. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, with the travel bans lifted, it makes things easier than, than they were. But yeah. obviously it's still, like you say, when you're looking out thinking, oh, you know, six, seven months sounded manageable, even though we didn't really know. But then, yeah, like you say, for people starting this process now, it is having to be that honest with yourself, with one another, that this is going to take time. Um, obviously, a lot of people choose to do this on their own with that, like we did. We had no clue, really, what what we were doing. Um, what are kind of some of the main things that you see people um, tripping up on that people maybe listening to this could think okay these are things that I should maybe look out for starting this process. So in the K1 a lot of the administrative errors that I see are just not enough address history, not enough work history, um, don't list all of the countries that they've lived in and this is from me doing reviews of applications so I, I do that as well and when I review that um, I find an average in these applications of about 15 errors and then when you get through to the evidence part the biggest thing that trips people up is making sure that they have the right version of different documents so something that I see in almost like 
every second application is that they haven't checked the travel.state website um, for their specific country and looked at the document register, um, which tells them, you know, exactly what they need and where to find it and everything like that in terms of the authority to go to. Um, and then they've got the wrong birth certificate or, you know, the wrong marriage certificate if they got married overseas for the CR1 process. Um, and then they get an RFE for it and it slows the process down. Um, Evidence of genuine relationship is another one. So um, it's not just about giving in the, you know, the intent to marry letter. It's about building a story behind it because the officer is going to look at um, your application and they need to make a decision whether they can approve that or not. And if they look at it and there's five photos, well, it's like, how are they going to establish that this is a genuine relationship? So there are things that are not important necessarily by themselves. For example, you know, your photos and your text messages and the hotel receipts and all of those things. But once you start adding a lot of that, it builds a whole case and, it, and suddenly you've got a strong application to put in. And then later down the road, so there's a lot of confusion around the I-134 versus the I-864. Um, with the I-134, you're only required to basically at a minimum provide a statement from the bank officer saying when your account was opened and how much money was put into there over the year um, and everything like that um, versus the I-864, which trips up a lot of people with the evidence requirements. Um, so in the States right now, within the US, while we're doing the adjustment of status process, we're really finding a lot of requests for evidence because people are sending their tax transcript and that's it. And frankly, that's fine because that's what the instructions say. However, USCIS is not accepting it. They want to see the 1040. They want the W-2s. They want the six months of pay stubs. They want um, the income verification letter from the employer. And they want to see the entire picture at this point. And there's just a myriad of RFPs coming out on it. Um, so I'd say that's probably the biggest pain point of people is the, the affidavit of support. Um, and otherwise, you know, the only other common thing that we really get any RFEs or any troubles for with evidence is the birth certificates and marriage certificates when they're from an overseas entity. So, um, yeah, I mean, that that's kind of what's going to trip you up unless you abandon your application by flying out of the country or something crazy like that. Um, those are the main things. Sure. I mean, obviously, the birth certificate is, yeah, like you say, something we've seen quite a lot of mm. recently. Um, what is it about that that is kind of causing issues? Because obviously, people are thinking, oh, we're submitting this and we thought it was right. What is it that's wrong that or not quite right, I suppose, that needs to be updated? Most commonly, they submit a short form birth certificate. So the parents aren't listed or something like that. And then other times, what seems to happen is that there might be a place where everyone in the country goes to get their birth certificate um, and they've just gone and done the same thing because that's acceptable in their country. However, in this document register, it says that needs to be issued by this authority and um, they're quite specific on the USCIS or, or the travel.state website about what features need to be on these birth certificates. For example, some of them say it's on green paper, it's got this stamp, it'll have this different thing with the fees on it you know so and then all of a sudden they've gotten the wrong version so they don't have all of that and that's what um trips them up 
Um, the other thing I have seen is that potentially they've got it from the right place and everything is there except for one minor detail. And what it is is that the authority has stopped doing whatever that was with their birth certificates or their civil documents. And then that has not been updated on the USCIS or the travel.state website. So then I've seen this once and it's probably just an unfortunate mistake on the USCIS end that the person received a birth certificate RFE and then it was just a matter of getting documentation from the authority you know but I mean the main thing is just having the wrong version sure I mean obviously things like that and like you say some of the kind of um, affidavit of support stuff which isn't necessarily specific in our in asking for that those things obviously are quite frustrating for couples as well because you think oh we thought we'd done everything possible and there's been a lot of chat about how you know these are just delaying tactics and so on I mean I don't know, I'm not that much of a conspiracy theorist necessarily, Um, but I guess also it is just trying to be as thorough as possible because this is a big deal to get a green card. Yeah, it's um, being thorough and I suppose making sure that um, when you're relying on internet resources, you're doing it from the right place. Um, you know, don't go on to Joe Blow's blog and expect to come out with a green card without any issues because, you know, I mean, they've probably just been through the process and can give you some sort of rundown. But this is me speaking from, you know, work experience more than anything. When I see these applications, everyone's making these same mistakes. So if you're making the mistake, the next person's making a mistake, and then you're passing that information on to the other people to make the same mistake. So, um, you know, I would say just make sure that you're looking at credible sources like from the government. If you kind of can type something into Google and, and just find a government source and try and go down a little bit of a rabbit hole, normally they have most of the information you need within their website or even all of the information. I find the Department of State website really quite extensive and accurate and and goes into all the detail that you really need so yeah I mean that would be my main advice is just to make sure that when you're getting information it's from an accurate source and you mentioned a bit earlier as well about obviously getting kind of invested in the people that you're helping and we've obviously seen that with people who are also in these groups who you know everyone kind of wants to see everyone succeed which is really lovely I think when you start out on this process it can feel lonely you don't necessarily know that there are other people out there have any idea how many people are going through it that kind of thing what does it mean to you to see applications come through and be successful when you what you know when you've helped people out with this yeah so I mean ultimately in my head someone has the opportunity now to spend the rest of their life with their family and they're going to go on and build themselves careers and build a house with their family and a home you know maybe they'll have children or um, start a business or do whatever it is so it's it doesn't just end at getting a green card really you've created a situation for someone where they can build a life for themselves and um, do so with someone that they love or you know with their parents their other family so it is it's really nice situation to be in and um as much as you go through that emotional roller coaster and there's 100% down times when someone's feeling really sad and it's lonely and they're in that really kind of lull period there's also that point where it's just like finally this is over and life is starting and and they've got a whole new life ahead of them and that's really nice 
Well, thank you so much to Stacey for sharing her experiences. And I really hope that what she said has helped when it comes to your K-1 or adjustment of status application. If you want to find out more about her work, search Family First Immigration Services. And if you want to keep up to date with this podcast, please make sure that you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Immigrant Fiance. I'll speak to you again soon.